Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by rockauto.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. And thank you, Alec Webb. Welcome, everyone, to MotorWeek podcast number 251. And we're delighted to have you all with us. And around our Zoom meeting today, we have writer, two-wheeler reporter, Brian Robinson. Hello, everyone. Our FYI reporters, Stephanie Hart. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. And our Over the Edge reporter and podcast producer, Greg Carlos. Happy to be here. Fresh back from our test track. Yeah, yeah, you were fighting some weather today. Uh, yeah, we got it. In case you're not in the east, we had a little bit of spring, and now we're almost back to winter again. So we're still fighting the, uh, the cold weather and the wet tracks and everything else. Let's see. We've got a full list, so we might as well get started. We're going to talk about a couple of vehicles uh, right off the bat. Stephanie's going to tell us what she's got coming up in her FYI segment. We have a lightning round, a viewer question. We'll see if anybody has a rant and rave, but let's start with two, and I say two because they are somewhat different, uh, big reveals in the SUV business in the uh, very recent uh, week or so. Uh, first, we had the 2022 Jeep Grand Wagoneer, and now the Wagoneer itself has been uh, brought out and shown to the media, and these are big body-on-frame vehicles. Uh, they basically uh, promised to go up against the, the largest vehicles from GM and Ford and some others. So why don't we just start to talk with um, what are they? Why, how are they different? Is it more than just trim or not between the two of them? And what's the uh, competitive uh, ranks look like? So Jeep's kind of going like sub-brand here with Wagoneer. I mean, obviously a, a huge nameplate for the brand, but it's it's more of like uh, separate, but also still under the Jeep umbrella. Um, so we talked a lot about the Grand Wagoneer uh, with, the, with our first look maybe a couple months ago when we saw the pre-production version. Mm -hmm. Now we have the production version. It looks very similar. Uh, a lot of the cool styling features we saw on it inside and out still made it into production. But I think probably uh, something that'll be more attainable will be the Wagoneer, which is really like the entry into the Wagoneer sub-brand starts at just under $58,000, um, goes up against like Tahoe suburban type deal. Um, but you, I mean, you still get quite a bit of technology within it. Uh, 5.7 liter V8 comes with that one. If you go to Grand Wagoneer, you're up into that 6.4 liter V8. And then, then you're in like, once you're in Grand Wagoneer, now you're in Escalade um, Navigator territory. What about you, uh, Mr. Robinson? Are is there are there other more are there significant differences otherwise? I mean, are is all the powertrains the same? Trim the same? What? Um, Greg would know more than me. They're definitely different. Um, he mentioned the engines were different, um, but both of them, for me anyway, are big, capable truck-like SUVs, which I love, and uh, they'll out tow a Tahoe by like two thousand pounds. Um, I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, Greg mentioned the Grand Wagon here going up against the likes of the Escalade, trying to out outdo them. That thing is uh, mega luxurious inside. Uh, and they still made them Jeep-like. They can ford two feet of water and climb over whatever you need to climb over on your way to Costco or wherever you got to get to. Yeah, Stephanie, I, I know you probably uh, weren't involved in some of the previews, but 
Does anything in these babies, you know, interest you? I mean, you live in the city. I mean, are they just too big these days? Are we getting so big that you can't drive these things anymore? Well, John, I've always been a huge fan of Jeep. I, I love the Jeep brands. Um, I do live in the city now, but I did uh, live out in suburbia, uh, you know, some years ago. And, you know, those were all over the place. Um, I love Jeep and I really like the Wagoneer, especially from the rear. It looks amazing. I love that vintage look from the rear, the logo. So I was really impressed by that. And yes, it is massive. It's huge, but there is definitely a market for that, especially for uh, folks with a larger family. And like Brian says, the towing capacity is amazing. I think it's 10,000 pounds of towing capacity. So you throw the family in there, hitch up the boat, and you're ready for summer. And it's getting warmer out there. So um, you know, yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, so uh, you know, I, I love this this new vehicle. I really do. I'm a little. I'm wondering if if buyers when they go in are going to be a little confused though, because not only do we have the new Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer body and frame, but over one step down, we've got. Uh, a new Grand Cherokee, and with that, the Grand Cherokee L, which is a three-row for the first time for the Grand Cherokee. Folks, what do you think the differences are as far as how the salespeople will push these to the buyers? What one, you know, what's suitable for one and not the other? Any thoughts on that? Well, salespeople are going to push whichever one they can make more money off of. That's a no-brainer. Uh, but they're, you know, just because you got a third row in the Cherokee, it's not very much bigger. Uh, it's nothing like like these, uh, like Wagoneers are. I think they're still more tile size than Suburban, judging from the right. from the looks and the pictures. I haven't seen one in person. But, um, you know, the Cherokee is still midsize and even a little small for a midsize these days, whereas the uh, Wagoneers are uh, much bigger. Yeah, and also I think the other big distinction is that the uh, Grand Wagoneer is going to continue with that, uh, and the Grand Wagoneer L, that semi, uh, well, it's a unitized frame, but it's more robust unitized frame than uh, most vehicles that have a unitized frame. Still, it has full-length rails that are welded, where over on the Grand Wagoneer side, it is clearly a body-on-frame, the old-style uh, truck-type uh, SUV. But I, I am impressed at how they have, you know, taken the the wherewithal, the, the money that they would have designed other passenger cars once they went away, they put them squarely back into uh, SUV products that the market seems to be gobbling up. So uh, the future certainly looks bright uh, for the Jeep brand. I'm sure that's a big reason that the, uh, the uh, uh, Peugeot folks um, bought up FCA and, uh, and Stellantis or however it's pronounced. It's like they keep... If they keep going, you just won't be able to pronounce any of these names. Um, speaking of SUVs and, uh, us, you know, the former FCA company, uh, a vehicle that I just almost didn't believe it was ever going to happen. I bet you over the last five years, we've talked four or five times on podcast about a vehicle going away called the Dodge Durango, which, of course, was almost the same as the previous generation uh, Jeep uh, Grand Cherokee, but it had a third row. 
but they were not making that many of them. It was something like, I don't know, six or seven of the, the Jeep Grand Cherokees to one of the Durangos. And here we are, an SRT Hellcat Durango. And I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope it lives forever. But how about some details for you folks? I, I don't think you can get into that thing and not have a smile on your face. Uh, no. <laughs> it's it, it is like it's ridiculously powerful it, it it sounds good it's a big big vehicle it's comfortable that's i think most importantly is i mean you can comfortably cruise and i mean the only the only one issue i noticed when you are cruising is sometimes it drones a little bit which i think yeah. we even heard in like the 392 durango but i i will say i Maybe because it is such a big vehicle, I wasn't as blown away with the 710 horsepower as I was when I drive like maybe a, a Scat Pack Challenger and then get into a Hellcat. I feel like the difference between those two is is pretty big. Here, I'm not so sure an extra 20 grand is worth it, and that's before dealer markup. But you know, having said all that, it's still if you're gonna give me one, it's awesome. I don't know what the date weight differential is, but it's got to be about five, six, seven, hundred pounds. Brian? Yeah, I didn't want to give you bad news, but they already said they're only going to make it for one year. So yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So, uh, buy them while you can. It's sure to be a collector's item. It was always odd to me that you could get that Hellcat engine in the Grand Cherokee, but yeah. not in the Durango. But uh, Dodge, ev yeah, Dodge eventually writes all wrongs in our world. And uh, <laughs> this is certainly a good step. Uh, having more than 700 horsepower in a big old SUV is awesome. Uh, it still tows 8,700 pounds, so you can tow your buddy's uh, uh, car to the racetrack and then out uh, run him and <laughs> pulling pull uh, pull 11 fives in that Durango. I can remember when 12-second Mustangs were like the fastest thing on the road. And uh, so this thing's just insane. But kind of what Greg was saying, the 392 uh, – it only got 475 horsepower, I think, but probably a much better vehicle for most people. But if you're just into jamming on the gas and scaring the crap out of your passengers, the uh, Hellcat's <laughs> definitely the way to go. We're just bragging right. Stephanie, anything to add? I mean, what's not to like about it? I mean, that's a little bit too much horsepower for me, I got to say. But, you know, it's a pretty amazing vehicle. Pretty impressive. I like you know, the look wonder. of it, too. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I like the look of it, and I have heard that it's pretty comfortable. It is. Johnny, um, how fast did you get it up to when you drove it? I, I, I wouldn't dare say because <laughs> they'd probably come uh, and knock on my door with handcuffs. But I'll ask all three of you, and Stephanie, let me start with you. Do you think this is the time, if you've got the money and you're younger than I am, to buy one of these 700 horsepower V8s and stick it away somewhere as a collector's item because we're starting, you know, if people, if the industry is be, be believed, you know, 15, 20 years, it's mostly electric vehicles. I don't, I'll believe it when I see it and I hope I do. But is this the time for someone to be thinking about collecting? Specifically, you know, a Hellcat or something else, you know, a big V8 Mustang, whatever. Yeah, if, money, if you had the if, money, what would you do? Yeah, if money is not an option, why wouldn't you? I mean, those big car collectors, it seems like that's what they did when they started way back when in the early 1900s. So 
you I couldn't mean, drive it. That's the issue. <laughs> like, yeah. You're going to buy it and let it sit. I, cars are weird investments, man. Like, I, I, I do think this one probably has a much better chance than other vehicles because I, I take Dodge at their word. They're just going to make the one year. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can, if you can pay for it now and tell yourself not to drive it, then I think you have a pretty good shot at making some money a decade or two down from, from now. Do you I think that's go ahead, Brian? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say eventually us people that crave V8s are gonna die off and all the kids that are buying cars today, uh, they're gonna have electric cars that they buy for twenty thousand dollars that are twice as fast. So I'm not sure how much they're gonna care. I mean, I didn't care about steam cars or model A's. <laughs> uh, you know, I just care. How old you know. are you again? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not old at all. But anyway, uh, you know, what we look at is collectors you know, and really cool now. I'm not sure 40, 50 years from now, uh, it'll really be that cool. You know, about what uh, Greg was saying and what you mentioned too, the one-year production. I just remember way, way back, a, a very successful collector told me it all comes down to the number of vehicles that they build. You know, there's a reason that Ferraris are more valuable, or at least I should say go go up in value faster than say a Di Tommaso Pantera that uh, Lincoln Mercury used to sell and sold a whole lot of them. Uh, You look at those, you know, uh, you look at something like a Dino and a Pantera that were built at the same time. The Dino's astronomical and the Pantera's gone up, but not that crazy. So it comes down to the number of uh, the production run. And so if you've got one that's a low production run, you got a better chance, I guess. Yeah, I guess Dodge didn't set a number right they just said they're going to do it for one year and that's it so, so yeah i mean so we don't know what, what not, maybe, maybe, yeah maybe if demand's high enough they'll make a ton of them they'll just be everywhere yeah. i'm sure they don't care about 20 years from now okay let's move along stephanie you're up um you've been you've been during the whole pandemic one of the uh, producers on motor week that has been out there shooting and doing stories because obviously People are still buying, owning cars, and, and you're out there to help them with that. Tell us about some of the segments that you've got in the can that are coming up near term. Well, John, a segment that's airing right now, actually, through March 25th is um, Warranty Know-How. So um, it explains how um, people can go about getting their car looked at if they think that it has a defect. So um, an organization called BBB Auto Line, which is based outside of Washington, D.C., they have about 20 manufacturers under their umbrella, uh, manufacturers like Ford, Subaru, Jaguar. So if you own one of the vehicles in their program and you think that your vehicle has um, some sort of defect, you can contact this neutral third-party organization called BBB Auto Line and they're gonna help you mediate and um, resolve uh, the problem. And it's a completely free service, which is amazing. Now, this is after you've gone through the normal dealer, uh, you know, trying the dealer trying to fix it under warranty and all that stuff. Yes, um, Lemon Laws um, also play a big role in all of this. So it's important for folks to know the Lemon Laws in their state um, because Lemon Laws also cover different things that, um, the manufacturer may or may not cover. So So it can be a pretty overwhelming process and it's great that BBB Auto Line is there to help folks sort of navigate it. 
because there's just so much information that comes at people when they think that their vehicle has a defect. Many years ago, I helped uh, a friend of mine try to go to arbitration, which is what this is, uh, with an auto manufacturer. And uh, it didn't take me very long in that room to realize that I was outgunned and, and needed a professional for that. Uh, also, if uh, folks out there, if you do miss this segment uh, as it originally airs on uh, public TV stations and also over on Motor Trend, it will be up on our youtube.com slash MotorWeek uh, website pretty quickly under the FYI segment. What else? What else is I'm coming sorry. up? Oh, okay. Uh, the connection yeah. cut out. I hear you. What else is coming up? Um, yeah. Well, I'm working on something that's going to be airing nationwide April 16th through the 22nd. Um, it's... Um, designed to help people um, who are thinking about financing new and used cars. Um, a lot has changed since the pandemic, as you know, John, and um, this is really important information um, that people should be aware of. And the good news about all of this is there's a lot of um, incentives right now for buyers. It's actually a buyer's market. Finance departments are really willing to work with folks um, because they are sympathetic of the pandemic and um, what it's done to our economy. So that's really great. That's the good news. Uh, manufacturers. Uh -huh. No, no, please finish. Manufacturers are offering um, amazing incentives. Um, they're also offering financing 0% APR for, let's say, 60 months. So you'll get the uh, rebate and you'll also get the 0% financing at a lot of these dealerships. Before the pandemic, we never saw anything like that. So now people are getting both, which is just amazing. You know, what, what, what amazes me is you're saying, and, and I know it's a buyer's market, yet, you know, production has been curtailed for not only the pandemic, but now also there's a, a parts shortage, a chip shortage, and yet the dealers and the incentives are some of the best I can remember. So um, uh, I, that should be an extremely helpful and valuable segment. Can't wait. Thank you. Well, let's move on to our lightning round. And uh, it's a, an interesting one this week. Not that they aren't always usually interesting. We're fresh off BMW's official reveal of its i8 all-electric SUV. And with it comes the latest version of iDrive. Believe it or not, it's been 20 years since we started rating, uh, giving profanities every time we got into a BMW with iDrive. It debuted first in the 7 Series. Uh, we certainly thought it was questionable at the time, but look what's happened. But the central control knob and digital display setup is now used by a variety of automakers, so they were trendsetters. Okay, the new iDrive 8, as they call it, puts an emphasis on voice recognition, voice control, but retains the console knob. So the lightning round question is, as you sit today, do you prefer a central controller or voice command? Who wants to start? I uh, still prefer a central controller, but it's, it's very quickly going in the other direction because... I remember when I started at MotorWeek 2012, that was when like GM was getting into voice control and it was like, okay, they're just dipping their toes in the water and it was okay. Now car manufacturers are like with Google, they're with Amazon. So they're actually getting real like well-fleshed out voice control commands. 
and it's getting really good. So that gap is closing between a physical controller and voice commands. Uh, but I think I still prefer to have control right there uh, at the at the console level. Stephanie, anything? Uh, what's your preference? I do agree with Greg. I prefer to have the the control, but I feel like eventually um, maybe I will go the other way. I think it just takes some time to get used to it, and once you're used to it, then you'll feel safe to give the car control. Mr. Robinson. So that was a very long question. I'm going to have a very long answer as well. Uh, so I actually went in 2002 before that 7 Series came out. I actually went over to Germany. It's one of those deals. They fly you over there overnight, and then immediately you get off the plane and they usher you into a dark uh, conference room and turn off all the lights and then tell you about this wonderful new interface that they have. And everyone everywhere is just falling asleep while they're telling us about how great this thing was. But Actually, I always thought it was pretty neat. It was certainly a good interface at the time, but the problem was most uh, automotive journalists, they get in a car and they drive for 30 seconds and they've already made up their opinion on the entire vehicle. And that's just something you could not do with iDrive. It was way ahead of its time. So uh, everyone hated it. Everyone complained about it. But BMWs, the whole reason they brought it out was because everyone complained about all the buttons and switches in the right. previous 7 Series. So uh, as you can see, we're never happy. But they've made, this, they've made the system a lot better. And I certainly prefer central controllers over touchpads. Uh, don't get me started on those. But yeah. anyway, to answer the original question, uh, I detest voice commands. Uh, I'm a mumbler. <laughs> I'm a mumbler in general, so uh, and I hate talking. So uh, I really hate talking to machines that don't understand me very well. Oh, that's funny. Well, that's true. Anyway, I agree with you. I, the the biggest thing that I remember about the the original iDrive, and they have vastly improved it over all the uh, several generations, is that it took so many commands to get anything to happen that you normally would have done with a knob. But every time they brought out a new version, they cut down on that to the point now that I think it works very well. Voice commands, I don't know about you or any of you, but when I get into a vehicle that's got voice recognition, which most everything does nowadays at, at the high end at least, I have set phrases that I use. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But I have found that with the systems they use, either Alexa or the Google Assistant, uh, they work extremely well. And I use them particularly uh, when I'm looking around for different uh, uh, media, audio, and so forth. Not so much climate control and, and things like that. But safety-wise, it's pretty clear that the voice commands are probably the way to go. I'm just not sure you're ever going to get anybody younger, maybe the youngest buyers, will be okay with not having knobs. But every time we see a new vehicle in that has only touch controls, we go berserk. And uh, and then, you know, we just, I just finished getting out of the, um, the Ford uh, Bronco Sport and it's got the, the new sync system and it's got a decent screen, but it's got all redundant controls, manual controls for almost everything. Plus it had some voice commands. I was in heaven. It gave me everything I could possibly want. My, my question to Robinson and really anybody if you had this, if you were in a BMW and you only had the choice between voice commands and their gesture control that they tried to do, <laughs> what would you use? 
Well, gesture gesture control was very limited in what you could do with it. Um, but I would probably even go with that. Sorry. Oh my. Oh my gosh. No you wave your hand. You don't you still wave your hand. Yeah, to, to give people background on that who can't see no, us or have never heard of gesture control. Yeah, like they you could you would put your hand at a certain location and like twirl your finger clockwise and counterclockwise to turn the volume up or down. And you could, you could quite literally shoo a phone call away by going like that, by like actually shooing your hand. Uh, I, I tried using all of them and they all had limited success. So I've, I've always been curious if BMW owners in that era, I don't know if they, I don't even know if they still do it, but I'd be curious if anybody actually used it. Yeah, it was, you know, Stephanie, we cut you off there. You were, you were saying something, you had a comment. I, I was just saying, yeah, no on the gesture control no. for me. I tried it on a press trip and it was just, yeah, it was a nightmare. You know, no, I would go with the voice commands. It, it was like, you could never figure out exactly the distance from the control. And, and as Greg said, some of me had to tour. And anyway, I remember the first, I think it was the first Cadillac that uh, was one of the first that I, first time I ever tried it. And it's like, get me out of this thing. And you felt a little weird using it too. I mean, shouldn't you yeah. have both hands on the wheel? Instead, you're like, people, it, it people just, are, I don't know. It was a people little think distracting you're and strange. People think you're giving them the finger and they break yeah. you. Yes. <laughs> All right, moving right along. Uh, we got a viewer question from Adam. It's another long one, Brian, just to let you know. I was looking at the new Ford F-150 and was taken back by the destination fee, and it was $1,695 and completely non-negotiable and required for every vehicle. So why are manufacturers allowed to advertise vehicles without including this fee? I totally understand that it costs money to get the vehicle delivered, but if I'm going to have to pay for it, then don't try to hide it from me. P.S., I like to give credit to GM, who is including the destination fee in the advertised price of the new Bolt and Bolt EUV vehicles. So good for them and shame on everybody else. All right. What do we think about destination fees and the fact that they're not in the MSRP? Should they be? I mean, I, I know we always include them in our pricing, uh, yes. but it's every if you've never been to a press event, which probably most of you have not been to a press event, literally like the first question at least the first five somebody asks what it is they know it's either written real small so even to us they're trying it seems like they're trying to hide it um but i don't think there's any rule or law that says they can't do it because it's not technically the price of the car it's it's an additional price like tax and, and things like that. it's like your 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 cable company provider probably says your uh service is fifty dollars a month a hundred dollars a month but then there's like another fifty percent in fees so, I mean, if it was legal, if it was illegal, I mean, they probably would would have to add it in there, but I mean, it's totally legal. Yeah, that sounds more like a rant than a question. Did we skip ahead? I don't know. <laughs> okay. It, it is what it is. I mean, that's advertising. They're going to try to make it as attractive as possible. You know, are we going to make gas stations stop selling gas at 131.999999, make them sell it for $1.32 or make Walmart put everything at $20 instead of $19.99. Um, it just is what it is. And I wouldn't give GM too much credit either because they promoted that uh, Bolt EV as being under $30,000 when the price was $37.5. You were paying 30 due to government rebates. So, Assuming you get it. 
Stephanie, any uh, any comment on uh, destination fees? You, you you deal with dealers more than I think all of us. I mean, it's a it's a bummer. I think it's just a fact of life at this point. Um, but I wish I uh, had this question earlier. I actually should have asked them when I was there the other day, and and then I could have brought back an answer. And definitely, it's something to ask on a press trip. But I think you just have to sort of grin and bear it at this point. But yeah, it's it's disappointing. They're there, of course. I do. I. Go ahead. I have anecdotal evidence of one person who is not actually paid for it, which was my father-in-law, who's told me the story where he went to buy a Kia Optima, I think, years ago, saw the charge, and it was just one of those days where he was like, I'm not budging on it. So he like made a point to say, like, I'm not paying it. It doesn't mean it wasn't paid. I assume the dealer just maybe took off like $1,600 or whatever it was, but he, he claims that he was able to not pay the destination charge. Here's a dirty little secret. All of that money goes to the manufacturer. It's a way for them to actually increase the price of the vehicle uh, more than they normally would. You know, if they increase the vehicle price, say, I don't know, 2%, then they add another hundred bucks onto the destination fee, which now seems to go up every year like clockwork, just like regular prices. So it's actually another way of them to uh, recoup a little bit more money straight back uh, to the uh, manufacturer that they don't have to share with the dealer or the, anybody else and, and non-negotiable. Uh, it ranks right up there in my book with some of these charges that are now, uh, depending on your state, dealers can charge quite a bit of money for uh, paperwork and so forth that's involved with buying a new vehicle. And uh, you know that's usually also uh, non-negotiable. So it's like the analogy to cable and telephone fees is a good one. You know, the it's not the the uh, the MSRP that gets you; it's all the fees. In this case, the delivery price, delivery freight. We used to call it freight. Okay. Um, well, that was kind of a rant and rave. Anybody, yeah, so we just leave rant that. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else that uh, is bothering you this week, or that you'd like to give praise to? Brian, I almost like saw your mouth open. No, no. Uh, no. no, I was uh, making a voice command to uh, my computer here. <laughs> Stephanie, anything to add? Not that I can think of at the moment. Oh, wow. Okay. Everybody's in pretty good, uh, pretty good mellow mood because we think <laughs> they do think spring is right around the corner. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being with us today. Thank you, Brian Robinson, Greg Carlos, Stephanie Hart. It was a very good podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And by the way, uh, if you're out there uh, trying to find Motor Week, you can go to our motorweek.org website, click up about the show up in the corner, pull down a list, put in your zip code, and you'll find out where we're broadcast on your local public television stations and the timing. And you can also catch us over on our cable partner, Motor Trend. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the folks behind the scene that make their podcasts uh, happen. Jim Bigwood, our audio supervisor, always does a great job of making us sound better than we have any right to. Of course, I mentioned that Greg here is our producer and our podcast creator, Bob Mixter. To everybody out there, thanks for joining us. Till next time, I'm John Davis, and thanks for being a part of Motor Week. You've been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by rockauto.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at motorweek.org. And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.